1817, the British Museum announced that it had acquired a statue of the great Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II of the film Ten Commandments fame. The the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, perhaps inspired by the acquisition, was moved to a friendly competition with his friend Horace Smith. Each would write a sonnet on the passage on a passage from the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, who described a great statue in the desert inscribed with these words from Ramses, also known as Ozymandias. King of kings, Ozymandias am I. If any want to know how great I am and where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. This is Shelley's poem, published in January 1818. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Just two legs of stone amidst a vast expanse of desert. Nothing else. All the works of the great Pharaoh crumbled to dust. Such is the fate of all great people and the empires they lead. Such is the fate of every single human political reality. From ancient Egypt to the Sumerian kings who described themselves as king of the universe, from Rome, which the poet Virgil described as the empire without end, to our own country, the wealthiest and most powerful nation the world has ever known. All have their sell-by date. You may not like to hear that, but history has proven it time and time again. You go out to Mount Rushmore. The rangers will tell you that the monument was built to outlast our civilization. There is no eternal city. There is no eternal empire. Except for the kingdom of our God, except kingdom is not really the correct word. The kingdoms of this world can be summed up in Jehoiakim's behavior. Baruch writes a scroll of God's word dictated by Jeremiah. When the scroll is read to the king, the king clearly doesn't care for what is read. He doesn't seem to be out and out angry like the court priests and prophets were in chapter 26. Then they rushed Jeremiah after he spoke and they said, you shall die. No, this king seems indifferent. To him, the scroll is fake news. And even if it isn't, who cares? King doesn't fear God. The king plans to continue doing whatever he wants to do. Kings love God when the use or misuse of God's name legitimizes their power. 
Kings want nothing to do with God when they realize that God demands accountability and obedience. And that's always the danger with kings and kingdoms, even contemporary ones. A leader without accountability, no matter how good a person she or he is, will always be tempted to grab more power. That's always the temptation. Leaders without restraints always seek to either usurp God or ignore God. And we the people always seem to be searching for the latest Messiah du jour to give our allegiance to. Systems of rule, then and now, are pyramid-shaped. The very important people are at the top of the pyramid. They wield power and influence over the vast majority of us further down. And truth be told, we kind of like pyramids because we know who has power and authority in a pyramid and who does not. We know whom to praise and whom to blame. We know whom to deify and whom to crucify. Pyramids are integral to how we structure society, even in a democratic republic like ours. But all pyramids crumble. Yesterday's pharaoh becomes today's pariah. Whole systems fall. As Yeats wrote, all things crumble, the center cannot hold. Every human system of power and influence is destined for this. All political, religious, and societal realities will be swept away like sand in the desert. So how is Jesus' kingship different? Jesus is a very unusual kind of king. In fact, the word king may not really apply. Jesus doesn't set up a pyramid, but an ever-broadening circle with himself at the center. You might ask, well, how is that different from a pyramid? Just look at what Jesus does at his final supper with his disciples. Jesus is not a king who takes from his subjects. To the contrary, Jesus is a king who gives everything to his subjects, to you and to me. Jesus gives his body and his blood for the life of the world. Jesus is the king who washes each of his disciples' feet, even those of Judas, he wields no sword or bow, but absorbs the fury of the world, which is desperate to keep its tottering pyramids intact. Jesus is our servant king, and it is by his self-giving that we have life. We have a new covenant, a new contract, if you will, between God and God's people. But in this contract, God does absolutely everything. God in Christ gives himself completely, utterly, for our life and our salvation. This contract doesn't depend on us or what we do. It doesn't count on our obedience, which is fickle in the best of times. It doesn't count on our prayer life or how often we go to church or these days tune in online. God has done everything. Of course, 
That doesn't mean we don't have work to do. We certainly do as God's people, as people who are part of this new covenant. James put it best, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. We've got work to do, even in this age, especially perhaps in this age when the church remains dispersed. We're ambassadors of this new contract between God and people, a contract so one-sided it seems almost too good to be true. And it would be unbelievable without the work of the Holy Spirit. We're citizens of this new kingdom, a kingdom with a servant king at the center, a kingdom without hierarchy, without pyramids. No, in this kingdom, all claims of greatness, all monuments to glory, count as nothing in the sight of God. There's only Christ and his cross.